Welcome again to Euangelion and episode three of our podcasts on the letter of Galatians. Uh, Thus far, we've seen Paul question whether or not he is seeking to please men or please God, um, having already introduced himself and his mission as one which revolves around Jesus Christ, the one having been raised by God the Father. Other parts of chapter 1 are clearly dedicated to defending his apostleship and his ministry, and this is another example, uh, not too dissimilar from 2 Corinthians, where Paul seems to be on the ropes somewhat, defending the content of his gospel, defending his stance as an apostle against some kind of opposition. And as we suggested in the first podcast, it would seem that the opposition in Galatians is coming from some Jewish Christian teachers, perhaps who've gone into the church after Paul planted the church there, and who are persuading Gentiles that they need to adopt Jewish ritual customs, not least of all circumcision, which amounts to wholesale proselytism or or conversion to Judaism in order to complete their their movement into the people of God. So this is what Paul writes as we continue in Galatians 1 from verse 11 and following. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Well, Paul picks up again in verse 11 on this idea that the gospel that was preached by him, didn't have its origin in people. You'll remember in the very opening verse of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul reminds readers or stresses to readers that he's one who's been sent, but sent by Jesus Christ and the God that raised Jesus from the dead. He wasn't sent by any Christian community, nor was he sent by any individual Christian leader. And he wants to stress that. He wants to stress that he didn't receive this from any man. As he um, comes into chapter 2, he'll start naming particular leaders who he probably was thinking about as as, as he wrote this. But he didn't receive it from any individual. He received this revelation through Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting in verse 12 is that the, the words, I received it, through a revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't reflect the Greek accurately. The verse actually ought to read, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, 
but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, repeating the words I received it there is probably to make it make sense. But there might be something slightly more subtle going on, which I'll come back to in a moment. In verse 13, Paul recalls one of the things which most people know about Paul, even people who aren't tremendously religious. And that's the fact that Paul, in his um, former life, was a rabid antagonist towards the early Jesus movement. He persecuted the church, he says, and tried to destroy it. And again, in in Greek, the, the, the words tried to don't appear. It simply says that he was destroying it. Luke mentions that Paul had some kind of authority to arrest and even incarcerate members of the Jesus movement. It's not entirely clear where Luke thinks Paul got that authority from, and Paul never claims uh, to have any such authority, whether that authority came from the synagogue in some way, or whether it was a more sort of um, community pressure group that he had begun, something which was not official, but something which um, both Jews and Romans turned their eyes away from because they weren't massive fans of the Jesus movement themselves. But Paul clearly had some kind of a problem with the early Jesus movement. And nowhere does he expressly suggest what that problem actually was. Now, what's interesting, in verse 14, he says that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. And Judaism here, there is some debate as to how we're supposed to understand that term. Um, The Greek term Judaismos doesn't necessarily mean Judaism as a religion as we understand it today, but rather a zealous application and zealous guardianship of the law. Uh, it almost it almost points to the, the very heart of what it means to proselytize, to try to convert people to believing in Yahweh. So maybe that's what Paul is driving at when he says he was advancing in Judaism. Now, again, to add to that, he says he was more extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. And as a Pharisee, we know Paul was a Pharisee from Philippians 3 and from the information that Luke gives. For Pharisees, the law was certainly important, but almost equally important. This was something which Jesus took issue with, but almost equally important were the ways of interpreting and applying the law that previous generations taught. And so Pharisees didn't just hold to the law, but they held to the traditions passed on to them by their parents and grandparents about how to apply the law in everyday life. And this is what Paul means here by his ancestral traditions. In the Gospels, the term is uh, the traditions of our fathers. And Paul says he was more extremely zealous for these traditions. Now that term zeal does at least imply something about what Paul may have meant um, by his approach. And it may give us some clue as to exactly why he seemed to have uh, such problems with the ancient Jesus movement. You may remember Jehu in 2 Kings 10 Um, And the author writes, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And that's right before he slaughtered some members of King Ahab's family. 
I'm sure you're all familiar with the story of Phineas in Numbers 25. Um, Phineas impaled a Jewish man and his Midianite lover with a javelin um, for intermarrying uh, against the commands of Yahweh. Uh, and it says in number 25 that Phineas had turned back the wrath of God from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal among them on God's behalf. And he says in Numbers 25, 13, it shall be for him and for his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. And in the book of 1st Maccabees, um, the books of Maccabees describe the Jewish resistance to um, the Syrian king Antiochus IV when he tried to force Greek philosophy and Greek traditions on the Jews. And at one point, um, Mattathias, the leader of the Maccabean family, the um, person that begun the resistance, witnesses a Jewish priest sacrificing on the altar of Antiochus IV uh, and a uh, one of Antiochus's own priests training this Jewish man to offer sacrifices to Antiochus and it's it says in 1 Maccabees that he that is Mattathias burned with zeal and his heart was stirred thus he burned with zeal for the Lord just as Phineas did against Zimri son of Salu then Mattathias cried out in the town with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And that was the beginning of the Jewish resistance against the um, Syrian king Antiochus IV, who was trying to effectively destroy Judaism. So perhaps then, Paul is continuing in this tradition. Perhaps in his zeal to defend the law, he saw in the Jesus movement some kind of dangerous compromise. And he was so um, aggressively zealous to defend the law that he was persecuting the early Jesus movement. But then something radical happened and he had this experience on the Damascus Road and in Galatians 1.15, he describes that as the time when God, who had set him apart from his mother's womb, called him through his grace. Now, in the early 60s, there was a theologian and priest called Krista Stondahl, who wrote a very important paper, a paper which, um, in many ways, uh, changed the direction of Pauline studies. And his paper was called Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. And it was an attempt to address the portrait of Paul which we see from the Reformation. And that's the portrait of someone who was weighed down with his own guilt of, of his sinfulness and his conscience was very weak. And therefore, he, he desperately looked for uh, forgiveness and for grace from God. And Krishna Stondahl argued that this was, in many ways, a Western imposition on Paul, that this was not how Paul's conscience actually was. Indeed, from Philippians 3, we read a, a Paul who describes himself as a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, 
a person who's from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, etc. This was not someone with a weak conscience. And Stondahl goes on to argue that the notion of Paul quote-unquote converting to Christianity on the Damascus Road is a, a misappropriation. What Stondahl argues is that what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road was a prophetic calling. And there are two reasons he argues that. First of all, of course, Paul actually says in Galatians 1.15 that he was called uh, through divine grace. But also he says that he was set apart even from his mother's womb, which seems to reflect the language of Jeremiah 1 verse 5, when Jeremiah himself is talking about his prophetic call. So maybe Paul wasn't converted in any substantial sense that we understand, but rather what he received on the Damascus path was a call to prophecy, a call to preach the good news to the Gentile world. Well, Paul, of course, took up that call, and he says that having done so, that his first port of call was not to immediately consult with flesh and blood. And this, of course, continues a theme that Paul's already begun. He he wants to stress that this gospel that's been revealed to him, or in him, we'll come back to that in a moment, this gospel that's been revealed in his life was revealed by Jesus Christ and by the God that raised Jesus from the dead. And so he didn't run around trying to get his message okayed by any other leaders or have it ratified by other leaders. Now we'll see in chapter two that he certainly wanted for there to be some agreement and some unity about what was being preached, but he certainly wasn't looking for authority from Jerusalem in order to preach his message in the first place. That authority, he says, comes straight from God. Now, in verse 16 here, um, the translation that I read to you actually renders the Greek literally, which I think is good. Because Paul says that Jesus was revealed in him. Now, some of your translations might say something like that God was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him to the Gentiles. And I don't want to make too much of an issue about a preposition. And I certainly don't want huge areas of theology or doctrine to rest on the use of a particular preposition. But I think there is something substantial about the notion of Jesus being revealed in Paul. The risen Christ was revealed in Paul. Remember in chapter 12, uh, um, verse 12 of chapter one, I mentioned that the words I received it don't appear. It simply says through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There's something particular about this revelation. Um, and I think the internal nature of this revelation. The key question is, what is it about what was revealed in Paul that made him conclude that his gospel to the Gentiles needs to be a gospel that didn't demand them to obey the Jewish law? Well, I think that it's the notion of Christ being risen. It's the risen Christ that was revealed in Paul. It was the life of Jesus that was revealed in Paul. And Paul, having experienced this new life in himself, having experienced what it means to know and engage with the risen Christ and the power of the risen Christ, that he concluded that the risen Christ is now that which identifies the people of God. And as such, there is no need for any person who 
wants to be in covenant relationship with God and ultimately to be um, saved to appeal to the law that the law doesn't have saving value and of course this is what he goes on to argue in Galatians so the revelation of Christ the risen Christ in Paul was the starting point in many ways of his gospel and I can't stress enough how important the risen Christ is to this letter even though the resurrection of Jesus is only ever mentioned in the first verse of the first chapter and even then it's only a divine title it's describing God I think that it's absolutely crucial uh, to the argument and some of the life emerging from death formulations I think illustrate that. It's interesting to me that Paul is continually stressing this notion of his own connection with the risen Christ and his own connection with God and the fact that he didn't feel the need to go and have his gospel okayed by people. And just like we mentioned um, in the second podcast about people-pleasing, sometimes I think we're constantly looking for the approval of people before we embark on the work that God has called us to. We don't need the truth okayed by human beings. The truth emerges from our relationship with God. The truth emerges from the scriptures. Our calling is something that only we um, know in our relationship with God. What is your calling today? By all means, seek the unity of your calling, but don't seek to have your calling okayed. God shows you how it is you must live in order to please him. It's not incumbent upon you to immediately go and consult with flesh and blood. What is incumbent upon you is to pray to the God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, for it is that very same energy with which you as a believing person have been endowed to serve the living God.